you would take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 42. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black, hard-bound Bible somewhere around you in the pew. And if you don't quite know how to navigate that Bible, Mark chapter 15 uh, begins on page 852, but the text we'll read starts on page 853. Those smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll begin in verse 42 in just a moment. I do want to underline, if you are a member of Gray Road tonight, please make it a priority to be here. We have been praying for three months, three months, about whether our, our church plant is going to be in Bargersville. We've been praying every Friday. We've been praying more than every Friday. And tonight is the night that we make that decision together, whether that is where we believe the Lord would have us do that. And so please be here. I did also want to give you an update on our offering of praise. You'll remember our goal uh, was $40,000 during our missions conference. We always take a special offering. Our goal was $40,000 this year. Uh, to, to this point, we have received $56,175. So we praise the Lord for that. His grace is just gloriously... What a blessing, isn't it? To be able to do all of the things in part giving to our Judea project, to this church plant. That's in large part what we are doing uh, with it. Uh, the last thing that I would just mention is that this Wednesday is when our membership class starts. So if you're just interested in who we are, what we believe, uh, how we operate... This class is for you. It runs four weeks. It'll be Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. Uh, if you don't tell us that you're coming, we won't have the class, you understand. So uh, don't, don't surprise me. I don't like surprises. Just tell me you're coming. Just tell me you're coming, and then we'll have that. So just call the church office or email, or you can use the QR code. But we do need to know that you're coming prior to uh, Wednesday night. All right? Uh, Mark chapter 15. Um, you know, in Ephesians 3, Paul talks about the, the surpassing riches of Christ. And as we've been working our way through the storyline of the Bible, we've come uh, to the treasure field, really. These last few weeks, looking at who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the pinnacle of the Bible. He is the target of the Bible. He is the culmination of all that has come before him and the grounds of everything that comes after him. And so we've been looking at these riches, the riches of his birth and, and of his purity and who he is. And last week, the riches of his death for us. And today, the riches of his resurrection. Let's read beginning in Mark chapter 15, verse 42. This is what the Spirit says to us. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. 
And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. Our God, we are thankful that death could not hold the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to your word, all of your words are holy, and we come to this precious moment that holds everything together. And we pray, God, that you will speak to us by your Spirit that you will teach us, that you will encourage us, that you will stir affections for you and for the Lord Jesus Christ in us and for those who don't know him truly, that you will stir new life in them. Build your church, Lord. Save the lost, Lord. Speak, O Lord till the earth is filled with your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you know what a keystone is. Uh, Not the road or the mall on the north side of town, uh, but uh, keystone is uh, originated with ancient architecture. Um, If you were building a stone archway, uh, as you were putting it together, you would support it from the bottom with wood while most of it was constructed. And then the very last piece would be put at the center at the top of that arch. And when it was put into place, it locked everything else in place. So when you look at these ancient arches, you can see this almost V-shaped keystone that is holding everything else together. Now, keystone is actually a word that's come to be used for a lot of things. You may talk about the keystone of an economic policy or the keystone of an ethical system or a philosophy. Uh, Scientists talk about a keystone species within an ecosystem. The the, the keystone is, is that thing that if it's not there, everything else changes. Everything else can go wrong without that one thing. And when it comes to the Christian faith, We have a keystone doctrine. It is the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, all sound doctrine is important, 
But Jesus' resurrection sits at the top of the arch of Christian doctrine. And it locks everything else in place. Without it, everything falls apart. And that's what Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So it's crucial that we always come back to the resurrection of Jesus. That it never gets out of arm's length from us. It's always near to us. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago as we looked at his temptation and his baptism, um, he begins his gospel with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is his mission statement for the entire book, to convince you and to convince me as we read it that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One the one that God had promised, the Savior that was coming, and that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh. And so Mark sets out through miracles and through teaching and through all manner of things to demonstrate Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, gospel essentially means good news. And the pinnacle of the good news, the keystone of the good news, is the moment that we just read, the resurrection of Jesus. Because listen, without this, it's interesting, when you read all four Gospels, here's what you'll find. These, these men pick and choose what they write about, right? You'll find one story here, one story in a couple of Gospels, one story in a few Gospels. But nobody leaves out the resurrection. Nobody leaves out the crucifixion and the resurrection because without these things, none of the other stuff matters. It was just kind of a nice blip on the historical map. You see, actually, without the resurrection, Mark couldn't write, it is the gospel of Jesus. Because what we need to know as we come out of this text today is that the resurrection of Jesus makes the message of Jesus good news. The resurrection of Jesus makes the message about Jesus good news. And so we come first to this piece that's almost skipped over in all of our minds, right? We go from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, and we just say he was crucified and he was raised, but all four Gospels tell us he was buried. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's summarizing the message about Jesus that he was buried, and so we begin by saying that Jesus is buried, but I mean he dies at the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon, and the Romans they honestly couldn't care less. I mean, sometimes they would leave bodies on crosses like this for a few days where they would begin to decompose or where birds, you know, scavenger birds would come and begin to pick at the bodies. But Deuteronomy 21 says that a body like this should not be left there overnight. Not only that, the next day is the Sabbath and no Jew is going to do anything about his burial 
on the Sabbath. And so there's a bit of urgency here. And this man that we have not ever met in Mark's gospel comes to the forefront. Look at verse 30, 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, there are obstacles to this request here. This is not just a straightforward request. I mean, there's a legal obstacle. According to Roman law, the bodies of those who are crucified belong to the Roman government. The second thing is there's a relational obstacle. Now, if you were a family member, you could go and make a request. doesn't guarantee you'll get it, especially if it was a high-profile uh, type crucifixion. But Joseph isn't even a relative. He doesn't go as a relative to request this body. And the third obstacle is actually a personal obstacle. Did you notice what, they, what Mark calls him at the beginning of verse 43? He's a respected member of the council. This is the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish authority in Jerusalem. These are the guys that hate Jesus. These are the guys that wrongly convict him and send him to his death. Now, whether Joseph was there or not, we have no idea. But what we do know is he belongs to that group. So when he goes and makes the request for the body, he is, he is showing himself to be sympathetic, at the very least, to Jesus. That's why Mark has to tell us that he took courage to do this. This moment really isn't about Joseph. It's about Jesus. It's the burial of Jesus. Do you know what we see as we read about the burial of Jesus? We first see the honor given to Jesus in his burial. The honor of Jesus' burial. You see, typically, uh, the Roman government, when they were done with the, leaving the bodies on these crosses, they would dump them into a common grave. It was crude, it was crass, it's disrespectful. It's as if the person who died there doesn't even matter. But Jesus matters to Joseph. And so he goes to Pilate and he makes this request for the body so that he can honor Jesus. And after it's granted, look at verse 46, Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, Joseph is a rich man, so he would have servants to help him. John says Nicodemus was there as well. But Joseph is hands-on. He buys the shroud. He is part of taking the body of Jesus off of the cross. He sees up close where the whips had struck him, where the nails had pierced him, where the thorns had punctured his brow, the bruises, and the blood that is, that is now starting to dry on his skin. I mean, the reality is the Bible tells us this was such a horrid execution that he, he didn't even really look human anymore. And now Joseph is touching Jesus' body. 
becoming ceremonially unclean. But that doesn't matter to Joseph now. What matters is honoring Jesus. And so the body, once it is down, would be washed off to get as much blood as possible off of that body. And then he wraps the body with with, uh, myrrh and aloe. And then the body is laid in the tomb. Joseph honors Jesus, honors his life, honors his ministry, honors his influence by caring for his body. Friends, the way any body, just as an implication, the way any body is handled in death can demonstrate honor to the one who has passed. When we lose those we love, we have the opportunity to honor them in the way that we handle their bodies, in the way that we have others handle their bodies. It actually doesn't matter, friends, that God can resurrect anybody from any condition in any place. That does not mean we don't need to take very seriously how we handle the bodies of those who have died and seek to honor those who need to be honored. Jesus' burial reveals Joseph honors him. We see the honor of Jesus' burial, but also we see the evidence of Jesus' burial. Okay, As I said, all four Gospels have this account, but there's a piece of this burial story that is only in Mark's Gospel. And look at verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, Pilate's surprise is not surprising because it would take sometimes two or three days for uh, someone to actually die on, the cr- on a cross like this when they were crucified. But Jesus had apparently died in hours and not days, which is why Pilate sends, uh, sends for the centurion and asks for confirmation. And that's actually one of his chief duties as centurion is to make sure that this crucifixion is carried out correctly and fully. And so he certifies the death. But, but look at all the death language, right? Uh, he's surprised to hear he's already died. So he wants to ask if he's really dead. And the centurion says, yes, he's really dead. And did you notice what Pilate grants to Joseph? Not a body, which is what Joseph had asked for. It's a completely different word in the Greek language. He grants him the corpse. He grants him the lifeless Jesus. Now, why does Mark write this way? The simplest answer is to give clear evidence that Jesus is dead. The death expert centurion says it. The word corpse affirms it. The wrapping in the linen shroud points to it, and the burial just underline, underline, underline. Jesus is dead. He did not faint, dear friends. He is not unconscious in the tomb. It isn't an illusion. Jesus is dead. 
But one more thing, look at verse 47. Uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he laid. Women are the witnesses to this event. Now, in that day, women were not even permitted to testify in open court. And yet, here they are, marked down by Mark, as witnesses of the burial. Listen, friends, if you and I were sitting around in the first century and we were going to make up a story about how our leader died and rose again, and that's going to be the keystone of our new religion, we would not write it this way. We would not do this because nobody would think that these are credible witnesses. But they are the actual witnesses, which actually makes them credible. Why? So why? why? Why does that matter that Jesus is actually dead? Well, because without genuine death, there's no genuine resurrection. He's not Wesley in the, you know, the Princess Bride. He's not mostly dead. You know, he's not that. He doesn't just need a gigantic nut with chocolate on top of it shoved down his... I don't even know what that thing was. But he is not that. Waking up from fainting isn't a miracle. Rising from the dead is. Jesus is buried. Which brings us to the keystone in chapter 16. Namely that Jesus rose from the dead. First, just look at the story here. Let, let me just reread it to get it fresh in our minds, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now, just notice... Notice a couple of things, all right? Notice the, the resurrection surprises these women. It surprises them, okay? Uh, th they didn't stop off at Costco for party favors and a cake so they could go to the tomb and throw a party and celebrate what they knew was going to happen all along, Jesus risen from the dead. That's not it at all. They take spices. Why do they take spices? To anoint his body because they expect the lifeless body of Jesus will still be in that tomb. But then eavesdrop on their conversation. Look at verse 3. Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? That is the question of women who think it will be exactly as it was when we left a couple of days ago. Nothing will have changed. They don't even know that guards have been stationed there. They just figure 
we're going to go back. Everything's going to be there. We probably should have asked someone to come along with us so that we could roll this stone away. And then look at what happens when they get there. In verse 5, they go in. They see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting at the right. And they were what? Alarmed, afraid. They didn't see him sitting there and, and rejoice. They didn't see him there and start the slow clap at the end of an inspirational movie, right? They didn't see him sitting there and start singing praise. They are alarmed. Why? Because they did not expect this. It surprises them. But also, the, the resurrection requires an explanation. It requires an explanation. It's actually because the resurrection is a surprise that it needs an explanation. Okay? In the Bible, God's, God's work, especially His miraculous work, is not self-evident. Here's the pattern you'll often find in the Bible, okay? Words, then action, then words. This is what God will do. It happens. This is what God has done. Right? Just think about the Exodus. Great example. I am going to rescue you. He rescues them. I have rescued you. God doesn't just act and expect us to figure it out because we never will. And actually, if you think about the whole story of the Bible, that pattern is the pattern. The Old Testament tells us what? What God will do in Jesus. The Gospels say, here's Jesus. Here's what he does. And then the rest of the New Testament says, this is what God has done in Jesus. And actually in the book of Mark, the resurrection follows the same pattern. I'll have to leave this for you for homework. But in Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 14, Jesus predicts his resurrection. And now the tomb is empty. We've already seen that these women are surprised. But if they come here and they see an empty tomb, they don't see a young man, they don't hear any words, they just show up at an empty tomb, what do you suppose might happen? Speculation. They would go away and say, well, we went there, but the tomb was empty. I wonder what happened to him. da 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 you know, people would jump on Facebook, right? They'd be taking selfies with an empty tomb and say, ah, this is what I, here's my conspiracy theory about what I think happened at the tomb. And actually, these kinds of theories exist, don't they? The, the, the whole theory that Jesus just swooned, this man who is beaten to a literal pulp, somehow just swooned and woke up and had the energy to move this massive stone on his own and walk out. And then there's, the, well, no, 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 it wasn't that. It was that the women went to the wrong tomb. I mean, I know they saw it and everything, but they went to the wrong tomb. I mean, they were so emotional. They just, there is one theory that somehow the body of Jesus decomposed completely in those three days. That some kind of strange, unique chemical reaction happens in the tomb so that it just evaporated. God doesn't want these kinds of speculation. He doesn't want us sitting around in our small group saying, well, why do you think the tomb was empty? Well, why do you think the tomb was empty? Well, that's a very interesting idea. I hadn't thought about evaporation. 
No. God want, doesn't want speculation, so He sends the angel to give revelation instead of speculation. So, look, so the angel tells them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. So there the pattern is complete, right? Jesus says, this is what God will do. God does something at the empty tomb. And the angel says, this is what God has done. Jesus is alive. God has raised the Son of God to life again. Now, other Gospels give other details in this interaction, but the, the emphasis here in Mark at this moment seems to be the words. The empty tomb and the explanation of the empty tomb. Now, dear friend, you may struggle with the whole notion of, revelation, of, of the resurrection of Jesus because you can't see it. You can't examine it. There's not a YouTube video that you can go and actually watch how it unfolded. All you have is words. Well, you know what? One of Jesus' disciples had the same struggle. His name was Thomas, and he had heard that Jesus was raised from the dead, and what he said was, I will not believe this unless I touch his wounds. And Jesus allows it, but then Jesus says this, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. All of the apostles, along with 500 other witnesses, all bear the same testimony. He is alive. I saw him. I saw him. Friend, when you think about how we relate to history, this is all you got. words. That's it. You weren't there when in 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. How do you confirm that Abraham Lincoln actually was president of the United States? Words. That's it. All you have is the testimony of those who come before you. Now, the testimony of one being a president is different than the testimony of one having died and been raised again. And yet, it is the same basis on which we believe words. Paul says, faith comes by hearing, not by seeing, by hearing. In fact, Jesus once said, if you won't believe what God has written... If you won't believe God's words, then you won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead and appears to you. If you won't believe the words, you won't believe. Period. You can ask God for a sign that all this is real for the rest of your life, but if you will not believe the words, it doesn't matter what signs come into your life. God doesn't ask you to believe a sign. He asks you to believe His words, to trust in His Son. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you 
believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which you can only do on the basis of words, you will be saved. There is no salvation apart from believing in the resurrection of Jesus. You have to believe this story. Not just be intrigued by it. Not just be intellectually stimulated by it. You have to receive it as the truth that it is. God says, He is risen. Will you believe it? But not only should we think about the story of the resurrection, we need to think about the significance of the resurrection. Now, obviously, I just said you cannot be saved. You cannot be a Christian without believing in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But I've also said that it is the keystone that holds everything else together. So let me give you five examples of things that are locked into place by the resurrection of Jesus. The first is the identity of Jesus himself is locked into place. Look at verse 8. Okay, These women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with the identity of Jesus? Well, as you read Mark's gospel, here's what you'll find. When the power and greatness and glory of Jesus is revealed to people, do you know how they respond? Fear. Jesus calms the storm. How do his disciples respond? Fear. Jesus casts out thousands of demons that were tormenting one man. And the townspeople see it and they are afraid. Jesus heals a woman with a bleeding issue. And she comes and falls at his feet in fear and trembling. Jesus walks on the water and his disciples are afraid. Jesus' glory as God the Son is revealed on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And Peter's like, uh, he doesn't know what to say. And Mark tells us why he doesn't know what to say. Because they were afraid. And so it's no surprise when Jesus of Nazareth conquers the grave and rises from the dead that these women can't stop shaking. Because he is who he said he is. He is who Mark said he is all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The resurrection locks that into place so that it goes nowhere. Second, the, the resurrection locks regeneration in place. Now, you may not know that word. That's okay. Let's talk about it. Regeneration is that act of God by which he gives life to our souls. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins until God makes us alive. That is regeneration. That is being born again. And listen to what Peter says about it. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Dead souls coming to life 
is only possible because Jesus was raised from the dead. You and I having spiritual life today can only be a reality if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The identity of Jesus, regeneration, justification. Justification is that declaration by God that our sin is forgiven and that we stand righteous before Him. Not because we are righteous, but because Jesus' righteousness is credited to us when we trust in Him. And apart from the resurrection of Jesus, we have no confidence that we're actually right with God. None. We just know that Jesus died. How do we know that He actually paid for our sins? How do we know that He's actually conquered death? How do we know that we're going to be saved from eternal death? The only way we know is through the resurrection. Through the resurrection. Isn't it interesting in verse 7 here in Mark 16 where the, the angel speaks to the women and he says, Tell his disciples and Peter. The resurrected Jesus has a message through the angel for Peter. Why? Well, if you don't know, it wasn't all that long ago that Peter flatly denied Jesus, separated himself from him, sinned against his friend and against his God by saying, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. How could Peter ever know that he was forgiven of that sin? Only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can you and I know? Only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. And in Romans 4, that he was given up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Fourth, our sanctification. The resurrection of Jesus locks our sanctification in place. Now, the Bible uses the word sanctification a few different ways. What I am talking about here is what's often called progressive sanctification, Christian growth, spiritual growth. We are meant as Christians to grow, to become more like Jesus. And in part, what that means is to grow away from sin and grow into holiness. Now, friends, if you're like me, you would be the first to raise your hand and say, that ain't easy. It is a war. Well, listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Look at the connection between the first phrase and the last one. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then He does live within you. His power is at work in you. And what does He say you can do 
in the last part of that section. Put to death the deeds of the body. The power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives within us. And by His power, we can put sin to death. We can grow. We can become more like Jesus. Listen, to say otherwise is to deny the truth of the Bible and to deny the power of the Holy Spirit. When you say, oh, no, 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 I can't possibly get past this. I'll never get past that. I can't get away from this sinful habit. You are not primarily saying something about the power of sin in your life. You are primarily saying something about the diminished power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Christians can't say can't. We may say won't, but we cannot say can't. Why? Because the spirit that lives within us raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the keystone that locks our sanctification in place. Fifth is our glorification, that moment when God raises us from the grave and transforms us. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning he's the first, but everybody else who believes in him is going to come along with him on that last day. We will have glorified bodies as he does. His final victory over death will be ours. Apart from the resurrection, we don't have that hope. And apart from the resurrection, we have no hope as we are praying for the regals in their loss of John's father. None whatsoever. But the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians, because since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who are fallen asleep. The resurrection locks all of that in place, friends. It's all locked into place because Jesus Christ is risen. He is not here. The identity of Jesus, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, all held in place by the resurrection of Jesus. Can you see that the resurrection of Jesus is the keystone of the Christian faith? You don't actually have Christian faith without it. And no man, no woman, no boy, no girl can be a Christian unless they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. We must not only believe that Jesus lived a great life and that he taught faithfully God's word and that he performed miracles and even that he we would say died for our sins, we must believe, must believe that having been buried, Christ the Lord is risen today. See, it doesn't just hold, it doesn't just hold the Christian faith together. As we believe in the resurrection, as we cling to the resurrection, as our only hope, our only hope, 
Even in the face of opposition, even in the face of suffering, the resurrection is our only hope. Don't fear the one who can kill the body but can't touch your soul, Jesus said. Fear him who, having killed the body, can cast both body and soul into hell. We need not fear anything or anyone or any idea or any system or any governmental election or anything or anything or anything. Why? Because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father sitting on the throne of the universe and He is resurrected. He reigns and He will return. That's why. So not only does the resurrection hold some system of doctrine together, do you know what it does? It holds us together. It holds me together. And it holds you together. The resurrection of Jesus makes the message about Jesus good news. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that in your kindness you sent Jesus Christ to die and be raised again for our sins, for our justification, for our sanctification, for our glorification, so that we might experience regeneration, so that we can know that He is the Christ, the Son of God. God, help us never to just assign this event one Sunday out of the year. As if Easter Sunday is the only Sunday that the resurrection matters. God, convince us over and over again that the resurrection matters every single day. It gives us hope every single day. It gives us strength to put sin to death every single day. And it's the only hope our lost friends and neighbors and loved ones have. Their hope is not in a renewed morality but in a resurrected Savior. Thank you for our Savior. Increase our love for Him and for those who don't know Him. you do as Peter wrote, cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing uh, to